Almighty God, thank you for this group and for their willingness to seek you in your word and to understand the world we live in through this Christian biblical lens that you have given us by new birth in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we are praying together for many things that will go unnamed, and thankfully we have no major problems, but we do have at least this problem with Kennedy's hearing loss that we would like to ask you to intervene and create a miraculous healing. We know you can, but we also know that you have given people an opportunity to witness your majesty and your genius in the way that your revealed secrets turn into cures and healing and medicine and surgery. And so, Lord, we'll take your healing any way it comes. We ask for Linda to experience as little stress as possible, just the same. And uh, we offer this and all of the unnamed things for your honor and glory, King Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, so I thought we'd start with a little review of what we did last week since several of us were unable to be here because you were listening to the Achis, which I think is wonderful. But we did cover some things last time, and um, I thought it'd be good if the class, if the people who were here last time, if you would like to just share some of the high points from last week that stood out in your memory. People hating the, the, what you said at the end of the class about why the people hated the Jews. Yeah, we talked about why do people hate the Jews. Yeah. That was the biggest and the baddest. Yeah. We talked a lot about the story of Esther and Haman trying to orchestrate the destruction of the Jews. Um, one reason I felt comfortable going ahead with that while some of you were missing is that a lot of you had been here for our study of Esther. So I thought, yeah, it'd be all right, you know, but, but basically we were understanding that the, what was it about Haman that seems to have played an important part in his hatred for the Jews? He was an Amalekite. He was an Amalekite. He slipped through. Yep. He slipped through somehow. And for whatever reason, Amalek passed on his commitment to the destruction of his father's enemies. His father was Esau. Interestingly, Esau made his peace with Israel, but his son Amalek didn't. And Amalek's been mad at him ever since, so to speak. And what else? Was there anything else that, that you know, we, we basically without reviewing the whole study of Esther and, and, and Haman, the bottom line is, is that, that the story is, in a weird way, kind of funny because virtually everything Haman planned backfired on him to the extent that everything he planned for others happened to him and he was the last guy to figure it out. But he suggested it. Yeah, he, he came up with the ideas and then, then they used them on him because all the while he's making these different suggestions about how to treat Mordecai and how to deal with uh, Mordecai's enemies. All the while he's thinking that he's setting himself up great. <laughs> yeah, Haman thought he was such this big character and he ends up dying in the end. Yeah, he was kind of a fool, really. I don't know how else to put it. But he had, he had 10 sons which was ironic, and of course in, in the Bible there's a lot of irony, but there are no accidents, you know. 
So we know that, that uh, just like Ishmael, he had 10 sons, but his 10 sons all died too as a result of this evil. And then really after we covered the whole story of Haman and Esther and Mordecai, we just started a discussion about why do people hate the Jews? Why has there been this perpetual hatred of the Jews? And, you know, I, I don't know where you come out on that, but if you'll notice, the lesson nine starts with that question. Well, the second item, B. So why is there this constant hatred for Jews throughout the ages? And it's a matter of record that these six theories, uh, well, I know there's six, but I see only five, five on my list. Ah, whatever. If you go online and you Google why do people hate the Jews, you will see that research and consistent output throughout the ages has always... The, the, most people who hate the Jews, if you ask them why, they'll give you one of these reasons, right? So... Uh, I'll just ask you to, to you know, raise your hand if you have ever heard anybody give this excuse for hating the Jews. And I'm going to ask you to be broad with that because maybe you don't know anybody who hates Jews. But maybe you read in your history book or you heard in a lecture or you saw on a TV show. I just want to know if you've ever heard this reason given. If you have, say yay, raise your hand, whatever. Economic theory. The Jews are hated because they possess too much wealth and power. Have you ever heard that one? Yep. I used to listen to shortwave radio a lot before I started listening to streaming audio of old-time radio shows. I like to go to bed listening to stuff. I can't help it. I've been doing this since I was a little kid, you know. And I would listen to shortwave radio, and some of the stuff I would hear, oh my gosh, there are people out there who really hate the Jews, and they're convinced that the downfall of this country is going to come because Jews have too much power. It's a real threat as far as they're concerned. I had no idea that Jews had a lot of money. I thought they were one of the poorest peoples. Well, the truth is, is that's a perception. Jews are about as economically well off as anybody else. Some are prosperous and some are not. I live in Jasper, Indiana. I live in a neighborhood where some of the homes in my neighborhood are worth three times what my house is worth. But back in Jesus' day, weren't the Jews one of the least wealthiest people? Again, it just depends on where you live and how you make your living. Jews living in Nazareth, where Jesus was, was raised, were not particularly well off. Jews in Jerusalem, some of them had palaces and, you know, very great lifestyles. So there is, there is a reason why we tend to associate Jews with prosperity. And there's not a simple answer to the question, but the, the bottom line is, is that it's because they are taught in the Torah certain things that if you do these things, you will prosper. And a lot of Jews are prosperous because they've been taught how to be prosperous from the beginning of their lives because, because they take their religion more seriously than a lot of people I know in Christendom. And one of the things they do is they learn how to prosper even while they're also learning how to read Hebrew and other things that they're what they call Hebrew school, which is, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Catholic church, any other child Catholics in the room? 
When we were growing up in Catholic Church, we went to catechism, right? Mm -hmm. yep. CCD. And that's because our parents, it was absolutely imperative that we not only go to Mass every weekend, but that we go to Christian education. And it was catechism, meaning that it had an order and a structure to it, and each year built on the last. And it was as structured and orderly as the curriculum that you should have in grade school and high school, primary and secondary schools. You know, the idea was that it built upon itself. So if you wonder why here in Jasper you have a lot of really prosperous Catholic Germans, well, because they're educated from very early age about certain values <laughs> that inform the way they operate. And of course, like most societies, Jasper being a good example, the societal norms are mixed in with the religious activity. And so a child just grows up assuming that being Catholic and German means you work hard. Thus, we have the Jasper work ethic, right? Same thing with Jews. You know, they're taught in, from an early age. Whereas in Protestant, it really depends on the church you go to. Lutherans have a catechism. Um, Presbyterians have a, a uh, uh, what they call the Westminster Confessions, so it's a kind of catechism. Um, I've always been puzzled since I've been a Methodist pastor. I've always scratched my head trying to figure out why we don't have a structured, orderly sort of process of educating children in doctrinal things. And so what I've done to compensate for that is I've asked, I'm really going off the rails here, but I have asked the people who teach the children and the teenagers, I've always said, as soon as I get to know them and, I, and, and they ask me, you know, what's your agenda, Pastor Dan, or whatever, I get out a printed copy of the Nicene Creed. You know, that's in the back of your hymnal. That's the long one, okay? I get that out and I say, can you articulate the meaning and value behind this statement for yourself? Do you understand what you're saying when you recite the words of the Nicene Creed? They usually do, because it's not that complicated. And it is basically one of the things that most all Christians can agree about, is that the Nicene Creed states the foundational, fundamental truths of being Christian. So then I tell them, well, in the absence of a catechism or anything, then what we're going to do in our church is we're going to make sure that every child at their age level can recite some expression of the fundamental truths of the Nicene Creed. So I ask, and in our preschool, they have religious education because we require it. Uh, since it's a church-based preschool, we've said we want you to offer religious education, but we're not trying to indoctrinate community children into the Methodist church. So here's what I want you to do. Make sure you understand the Nicene Creed and then share that with the children in a way that they can then articulate its basic meanings or basic concepts. So if a preschooler can say there's a God, he had a son, his son took the penalty for us of our sins and now he's alive again even though he died and there's a Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, if a, if a, if a four-year-old can basically tell you there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that Jesus died but rose again. I mean, you know, if they can tell you that, that's great. But it's the Nicene Creed. And then fifth graders, I expect a little bit more from them. And ninth graders, I expect a little bit more from them. And you, I expect to be able to read me the Nicene Creed and tell me exactly what it says about it. Because we don't have a catechism. So anyway, that's just a little aside because one of the biggest dilemmas I've faced as a pastor in the United Methodist Church is... 
how do we have a certain consistency in Christian education in the United Methodist Church because we don't have a standard that we're holding up as the primary, you know, thing we're all aiming at. We don't have a Westminster Confessions. We don't have a catechism, you know, so anyway. Okay, how many people have heard the outsider's theory that Jews are hated because they're different from everybody else? This one's a little more uncommon, at least openly, because it's essentially racism. Right. You know, it's essentially saying that somehow, when you go to Yad Vashem, you who are going on this trip, you know, I'm just going to tell you right now, you, you will come away from that upset. You just can't help but being upset. And one of the things that you will see, and really there are good Holocaust museums around our country too, because it needs to be retold so we can try to keep from letting it happen again. But one of the things you'll see is that in the early days of the Jewish Holocaust, back in the 30s, there were caricatures and things where they really emphasized, you know, like big schnozzes, and they, they just really turned these people into alien-looking people in, in caricatures and emphasized the, the dress codes of some of the Hasidic Jews, but then tried to make it comical in its appearance and everything. So just by demonizing people who are different and then reinforcing that demonized variation, they could take people that look pretty much, you know, if you ever see pictures of the dead from the Holocaust, like the, after the Americans came into Auschwitz or someplace like that, you know what, they're naked and dead and they look like everybody else I know. <laughs> you know, so the whole thing's ridiculous is what I'm saying. It's, it's completely absurd, but that is the excuse that's given for some of the hatred towards the Jews. Um, the scapegoat theory says that they're hated because they're the ones who are the cause of all the world's problems. That's certainly what Hitler thought. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. consistent. You know, he, he, he systematically educates all the ignorant that that's why they're suffering. Not that it was the bad decisions that his predecessors made that lost World War I for them and all that. Not that that's what's causing your problems. It's the Jews. And then anybody who was intelligent, educated, or ethical enough to disagree with him, they eliminated. Pretty soon you got nothing but people who believe everything he said. You know. The old burning books thing, as soon as somebody tries to rewrite history and eliminate anything that might prove them wrong, you know you're headed for trouble. Could, yeah. it, could it be related to, number one, where they have too much wealth, and because they were wealthy, they caused issues that us common people sure, sure. have the brunt of? Well, think about it. And, and, you know, I can think of episodes of Twilight Zone, and I can think of things that I've read in... Mm -hmm. uh, blog posts and things where people are advocating prepping for the big disaster. And there's one thing they always tell you is if you're riding out the storm because you're better prepared than the other guy, then you need to be prepared for a whole lot of people to hate you for that and want to take what you have. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, uh, it's just, it is the way it is. I mean, people, if people find out that you are better prepared for hard times than they are, then they will try to take what you have one way or another. So in Germany, the, in an economically depressed era, there was a lot of benefit to, 
taking the Jews out of their homes and businesses and carting them off to concentration camps and then giving all their wealth to other people. No, they kept it. Yeah. I mean, most of the German leaders had huge art exhibits. Yeah. Stashes. I mean, they... Yeah. Yeah, it was just a... It was a... They, they were a criminal enterprise. Now, I'm not ready to do it this week. I've really been struggling trying to figure out how I'm going to present the next part. But there's a correlation between Haman and the story of Esther and the Nazis. There's a correlation between the Amalekites and the Nazis. It's really bizarre, but it's real. And I'm hoping with the last thing we talk about tonight, I can show you something else that you might not realize is there so that you'll be more open to the idea that there may be other things in scripture that you didn't know were there. That's what I'm hoping for here. But the next reason they is commonly given is there, it's called the deicide theory, but all that really means is, is that they're suffering the consequences of being the ones who killed Jesus. That's what I thought it was. And a lot of people have said that, yeah. Well, first of all, who killed Jesus? I mean, who literally killed Jesus? Romans. We talked Romans. about this last time. Though. So, you know, if we, if we believe that that theory could be true, then we need to accept that that's not true. We should actually be um, uh, giving up pizza and, and ravioli and all that good stuff because it's, it's those Romans that did all that. You know what I mean? That, that's how absurd the idea is. Well, and uh, there were the Jews said, let this be on us and our children. Yes. And there is reason to believe that that may not have been the way it was actually stated and that that was one of the things that got changed, interestingly enough, by Germans. Because before we had English translation of Scripture, so the first, the first uh, translations of, of the Bible were written in Latin, and that translation is called the Vulgate, and it's the same root word for vulgar. Latin was the language of the people in those days, so it was the vulgar language. When we go to the Church of the Nativity, we will be standing right next door, separated by a stone wall, from the place where St. Jerome spent years translating the original uh, Hebrew and Greek into Latin so that we could have the Vulgate or the Latin version of the Bible. Well, the next translation that occurred, which was centuries later, was someone took his Latin translation and translated it into German. That's where we get the word Jehovah. Anybody ever heard Jehovah? That's because that's how the Germans pronounced Yahweh. They couldn't pronounce Yahweh. They couldn't figure out how to spell Yahweh, so they pronounced it Jehovah and it stuck. But that's also because the German translations were pretty ubiquitous. They were common and fairly easy to come by for a long time in the history of church. And then a lot of English translations came from the German translations. And if you look at history, and you look at the history of the church, and you hear about like Huguenots and uh, oh, I'm trying to think of some of the names of the different tribes and everything. But when you look at Ger uh, Germany in, in the history of Europe in the first uh, millennium, in the first thousand years after Christ, if you look at Germany, there are a series of tribes in Central Europe that are always fighting with each other. And the ones who became the Germans or the German people 
were the most violent. Historically, they were the most violent in Europe. You know, there was a hundred years war. I always call it the real first world war because the world was Europe in those days and the whole continent was at war. And it was a violent, horrific war. And the Huns were predominant in many respects simply because they were more violent and vicious than any of their enemies. And people were terrified by them. You remember the Hessians from the Revolutionary War? Yeah? yeah? The Hessians were brought in by the British because the British were too polite and too orderly about the way that they were trying to beat the Americans. And the Americans had learned something called guerrilla warfare. So they hired Hessians to come in and fight the Americans because they knew that they would terrify the Americans. And they did. I'm not trying to make you hate Germans. I'm German. I'm, I'm my family. I'm tickled because we're flying through Munich because I've been to Frankfurt, which is where one strand of my family comes from is up in that part of Germany. Now we're going down to the other part of Germany where another strand of my family comes from. I'm German, but I'm just saying that there's an interesting correlations throughout history because violence comes from every people group and it comes from every color, even gender. Violence is something you can see anywhere, but organized systemic violence, violence that is sort of like the guiding cultural norm is surprisingly limited to certain people groups because most people will tell you that there are certain things that are just universal, like murder is, is wrong, right? But there are certain people groups that say, no, murder is not wrong. Just depends on who you murder and why. You know what I mean? And, and it's perfectly normal within their thinking. But there are lots and lots of people groups that don't have anything else in common with us. But we all agree that certain things are sacred, like life, you know. But there are certain people groups in the world who have pretty consistently throughout history despised life. And so, and, and there's a whole sort of Wagnerian, you know, like the rain cycle, you know, I'll tell you about that sometime if you haven't. But the whole Valkyries and all that from Wagner's rain cycle, you know, dun da da dun 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 da da dun you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. <laughs> all of that is about causing as much chaos and violence as you can, and when it's your time to die, to laugh and, and die with your boots on, and if you can manage it, find a good woman before you die and take care of business and then die. <laughs> By the way, that's exactly what happened to Hitler, you know. He never married Ava Braun until the day he was certain that he was about to die. And they married, consummated the marriage, and then they killed themselves. There's this whole weird Valkyrie, Wagnerian thing. It's very consistent throughout time. I said I wasn't going to tackle that this week, and here I am trying to do it. And I'm not prepared. Now you just haven't taken my word for it, and you really need more substantial evidence. Okay, now we're down to the chosen people theory. People hate them because they claim to be the chosen people. Well, I've heard that one. And what's ironic is, is there are some people that I've known, Jewish people I've known, because I've had the privilege of having many acquaintances and friends who are Jewish. Some people think they're chosen, and they mean because we're special. Like, like we're just better than everybody else. And the Bible says so. 
But I question whether they really know their Bible because the Bible makes it pretty clear that God delights in using the most unlikely people to accomplish God's ends. The Bible makes it very clear throughout their Bible, that old, what we call the Old Testament, that God intentionally chooses people who are not really capable of accomplishing what God wants done. And the whole point is, is that God would be glorified and not the people. Saul was, you know, big, tall, good-looking guy. He was exactly what you'd expect a king to look like. But he was pretty sure he was winning all those victories. And so his downfall was his pride. And along comes this humble, completely unlikely, irrelevant child who, who is, you know, one thing he's certain of is, is that you guys are chicken because this giant standing out there, you don't understand. He's not bigger than God. He's just bigger than us. And, and so the humility is what makes David such a remarkable character. It's not that he isn't a flawed, messed up dude, because boy, he makes some major, major mistakes. But he always has this clear picture of God and God's significance and superiority to everything, and that's his one saving grace, is that he has a heart for God. So what you gotta realize is that if they claim to be a chosen people, they got chosen because they were such unlikely success for, for success that they were losers in a way you know that the, that the tribe was chosen i mean look at israel gets its name because jacob who cheats and lies and swindles and cons his brother his dad he tries to pull one over on on uh, laban his father-in-law and his father-in-law turns out to be a little cagier than he is and so they go round and round playing this dickering game where they're both getting way in over their heads and everything and then and then then Jacob wrestles with God he's like I'm gonna wrestle with my heavenly father my God the creator I'm gonna wrestle with him until I get the blessing I want from him I stole it from my brother and I can steal it from God and then he comes away wounded and God says yeah you'll do <laughs> and he says you will be Israel and that's where they get their name. And, and it starts with this Jacob. You know, it's, it's really kind of remarkable. So I, I think it's pretty unlikely that it's because they're chosen. So none of these ideas really hold any water, do they? And so to help get at what makes them the chosen people, what makes God, uh, makes them hated, we go to Romans uh, chapter 9 verses three to five, and this is just to establish the kind of the heart of the matter. Um, I, had a, I had a seminary professor, Romans nine, verse three and five, or three through five. I had a seminary professor who was convinced and he'd written you know, papers on the subject and you know, Academia, they write big papers to each other and then they debate about which one was right and wrong and all that. But anyway, he was convinced that, Roman, that, that Romans is the evidence that Paul was not really on a mission to save the Gentiles. He was on a mission to save the Jews, but he recognized that if he saved the Gentiles, it would bring about the salvation of the Jews. So the reason he worked so hard to save the Gentiles was because he was trying to bring about the salvation of the Jews. Read this passage and see if there isn't some merit to this thought. Chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. 
says, For I could wish that I myself were accused and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God all over all, blessed forever. Amen. Who's Paul think the people of Israel are? His relatives. And he thinks that they are still under the covenant that was made with Abraham and Moses. Mm-hmm. He's convinced of that. And he's convinced that if they could just recognize Christ for who he is, they would be complete. And so he's trying to change the world so that it's sort of pulled out from under them. And, and so it's an interesting argument. I'm not trying to prove my professor's case, but, but what I really want you to see is, do you want to know why the world hates the Jews? Paul outlines it right there because God has worked all of God's earthly uh, mission and purpose through the Jews, where Jesus come from. You know, the Jews have been vital to the salvation of the world, and they'll play a critical role at the end of time. And so if you go to Revelation 12, and that's just sort of an overview. I won't read the whole chapter, but if you look at Revelation 12, what you will see is kind of a description of how it run, how it turns out for the Jews, because they're important to God. And this chapter 12 is the story of the woman and the dragon, and it's an analogy and metaphor. It's not, you know, like, so when you read it, it's not literally talking about the, the literal woman and dragon. The dragon is, is the indication of, of Satan. And Satan's always portrayed in the Bible as a serpent, but there's actually a word, it's called like Nahan or something like that. And it's a word that describes a serpent, and it's not really like a snake, as it's you know like it's pictured on your your children's Bible. It's the Nahan or the the serpent of the of the uh, Garden of Eden, the serpent in uh, Pharaoh's court, the serpent in and dragon in Revelation. It's it's always a sort of dragon. It's a kind of dragon. It's so so it's not a snake. It's a dragon, which is interesting because we have a lot of dragons in lore throughout human history, and yet no one's ever actually seen one. And logical, practical people say, well, you know, they're probably just talking about dinosaurs, you know. Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I'm not going to say. But this tells us that this dragon is bent on the destruction of the Jews and even in the end God's going to protect them and God's going to save them even then from their enemies. Uh, People who are looking for the beginning of the end, I mean the active beginning of the end, have always said, you know, when a great attack comes from the north upon Israel, it'll be thwarted 
by the power of God. That'll be the only explanation. You know, the bombers will fall out of the sky, you know, whatever. And the people who, who are looking for signs of the end times always point to that as the critical event that no one can ignore, that no one could miss. A critical event that no one can ignore has already happened, and that's the establishment of Israel as a nation. So, okay. Mickey, what time is it? 6.42. Okay. Mickey says it's 6.42. I've been hanging around with Ron Flowers so much that I'm always thinking about Mickey and Minnie and Donald. And if you don't know him, you don't know why that's funny, but George is chuckling. <laughs> You, you, can't get Don, you cannot get Ron Flowers to explain anything to you without Donald Duck, Mickey, and Minnie eventually coming into the conversation because those are his substitutionary people for any examples that he might give. All right. God love you, Ron. You're the best man for the job right now. That's the truth. Um, Genesis 16:7. Can somebody look that up and read it for us? And someone else look up Genesis 25:18. And someone else look up 1 Samuel... 15, 7 to 8. They're in your study guide. Okay. Genesis 16, 7. Uh-huh. Uh, I hope I have that right here. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Okay. Genesis 25, 18. Anybody? Okay. They settled from Havilah to Shore, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. All right. Anybody got 1 Samuel 15, 7 to 8? Uh, then Samuel attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shore to the east of Egypt. He took Og, king of the Amalekites alive and all his people, all of his people, he totally destroyed with sword. All right. If you have a Bible map in your uh, Bible, open it up and see if you can find Havilah and Shur. If you don't, there's a world map over there. And yesterday, I tried to make sure that you couldn't fail at locating Havilah and Shur. <laughs> so you see, I do prepare for these classes. Well, this is all I got. Okay, so Havilah and Shur. Um, let's see, Mike. Oh, okay. Uh, is it right behind you? In, and it's also right here, by the way. I think Wilderness of Shur. So there's the wilderness of Shur, and Havilah's over here somewhere. All right, what modern countries, and Jim might have to help us since he's there, what modern countries are found in that region? And keep in mind that there's this thing they call the Fertile Crescent because people did not live in the places where there was no water. So if you really want to try to imagine the the battlefront that Samuel was traveling on as he was chasing them back and forth across this region, they would have arced upward towards where there's water. So if you can imagine sort of an arc from Havilah to Shur, what countries do you see there, modern countries? 
Uh, well, how well your arrow says it's in Saudi Arabia, current Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq is to the north, Iran is across the Gulf. Uh, it's not in my Bible. Jordan. Egypt's right. Yep. In Egypt. Kuwait is right there. So you, you get Syria. Who are the people that live in those countries primarily and have lived in those areas for generations? Esau's relatives. Yeah, you jump into the to the point, but but Esau and, and Ishmael. But drawing your own conclusions, what do you know about those people? They're prelim. They're 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 mostly Arabs, which is really the the best. It's not that you're wrong, but the best word for those people is is that. If I'm Caucasian, someone else is, is uh, Hispanic, you know, the, an Arab would describe a person who is nationality and birth is from that area. And almost to a person, they're Muslim, right? Pastor, where's Havilah and Shur? Well, Shur, the wilderness of Shur is right along in here. And Havilah is over here somewhere, but this map doesn't show it. But, but so basically, Saudi Arabia and Israel and Syria. <laughs> well, as you look at who owns the Sinai Peninsula? Egypt. Egypt. Okay, but so if you look, Egypt. like you see where Gaza is, the the part of Israel that Israel gave up as a part of peace accords and negotiations is the region of, they call the Gaza Strip. It's one of the most violent places in the region, by the way. And I remember when they were bulldozing some of the settlers' homes of Israelite people, Israeli people who were settling. It technically those people were in the wrong because they were they they were they're what they call Zionists. They were trying to hasten the coming of the Messiah by occupying the biblical lands that Israel owned. And their thinking was, is we're going to go move into these places and we're going to farm them and we're going to prosper on them. And then, you know, when we fulfill prophecy, then we'll see the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah. And their government basically said, yeah, but you're squatters. Um, yeah, but we told them they could have that. And you kind of broke the law. And, and so those homes ended up getting bulldozed as a way to keep the peace with the Arabs in that area. But then there were other areas like Gaza where they basically paid off the Israelis who lived in the Gaza Strip and asked them, please, 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 we'll pay you for the value of everything you put there if you'll leave it there. So they asked them to leave the orchards and the farms and the greenhouses and all the things you would, you know, if you had that already working and ready to go, agricultural things like irrigation and all that, if it was all ready, and you, some, you know, somehow the people abandoned it and left it behind for you, you'd be off to a great start building your society. What happened was is that as soon as the Israelis pulled out, Arab people came in and immediately started destroying all of it and, and going, ha ha, we made them go away. And they destroyed everything that was left behind for them so that they could build a healthy society and a healthy economy. And so Gaza is a wild land right now. And the only violence that happens in Israel originates basically from Gaza. And it's in that region between Shur and Havilah. Can't help noticing that, right? It's just bizarre how consistent that is. And 
So I wanted you to see what countries were there and get a sense of the continuity, that there's a, there's a consistent violence toward the people of Israel that emerges out of that region and the people of that region have been driven back there countless times in history by Israelites. And you remember the uh, seven days, six days war? You remember when Egypt launched an all out, Nasser launches an all out assault on Israel? And it's a miracle. Israel, this tiny little fledgling, it's, it's a, this, the, Israel is so much more powerful now than it was then. And it has strong allies like the U.S. now that it didn't necessarily have then. So this little tiny country that should have been overwhelmed by the money and the might of the Arab military defeated them in six days. And I mean, they've never been back. And they made peace with Israel. And of course, Sadat got murdered for making peace with Israel. So this is history that most of us are old enough to remember. If you don't, well... Trust me, it happened. Well, and, and God just gave them such wisdom. I actually read a book about it uh, for a class for the military. And the Israelites did, Israelis did things like they bombed Cairo during rush hour. So all the generals were on their way to work, and this is before cell phones. Mm -hmm. And they were all out of touch. Yep. And they um, shuttled some tanks down from um, the sea that's on the go down right there. That little body of water, they took a bunch of tanks from the top of it, drove them down to the bottom, and then at night they would very quietly get them on ships and take them back up to the top of that safe place. They did, their, did that circle several times and the Egyptians thought they were building an army down there and then the Israelis did something completely different but yeah God just mm -hmm. God blesses those who bless Israel and he curses those who don't and you hear people say things like this and maybe before this class maybe before you started researching because of this class you were thinking, I hate it when people say stuff like that because it just doesn't seem right. True. But it's true. It really is true. You can see it over and over again in history. There really is a sort of opposition force that is directed by Satan and a force that is governed by the Lord. Does that mean everybody in either of those elements is all in or all out? I mean, you can't go there. But if you want to understand that there really is a battle being fought on the earth with humanity being both the pawns and the prize, you know, because we're kind of both. We're being manipulated by Satan and we're being used or utilized by God. But we're also what the victor is trying to gain so so we're being manipulated and and directed in order that we can be won or destroyed i mean it depends on which side's looking at it and it really does boil down to the hatred between ishmael's son uh, amalek yeah his son amalek and israel 
I mean, it really does go back to that. Does that mean that every evil thing that's ever happened to Israelites is a result of Amalek and his people? Yes and no, it, because there are other reasons why it happens. So let's look at this. The other thing I want to show you, on the back, I probably have violated a copyright law because they usually say, they usually say not in part or in whole, and I give you part of Rabbi Lappin's study guide because I want you to see that you need to visualize this. All right? First thing you need to see is at the top, the name Yishmael. Remember the Hebrew is written from right to left. So on the left it says Yishmael reading from left to right. And on the right it's Yishmael in Hebrew reading from right to left. Then look at the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 17 written in Hebrew. And right there in the words of Deuteronomy 17.12 as they appear in Hebrew, there's Yishmael. His name is encoded in the text. And if you go down to the English translation, Deuteronomy 17, verse 12 says, And the man who will act presumptuously and will not listen to the priest. Then you go up here and you look at the Hebrew and you read chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse um, 19. And what does it say? Remember, it reads from right to left. There's Hebrew for Yishmael again. It's right there in that sentence, and that sentence says, And it shall come to pass that the man who will not listen to my words. Then you go to chapter 21, and you look at verse 18, and you read it in Hebrew from right to left, and darned if you don't see Ishmael's name again, encoded in the text. And that text says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and when they discipline him, will not listen to them. And guess what? This encoded use of the name Yishmael does not occur anywhere else in the Old Testament. Only in those three sentences. Isn't that interesting? What do you know in general? I'm not trying to form your thought for you. I'm asking you to reflect on what you remember about history during your lifetime. What do you know about the people who live in that region that we've just been talking about between Havilah and Shur? What do you know about those people? Are they kind of rowdy? Troublesome? <laughs> Is Gaza a pretty good example of people who live like this passage, these three passages have described? They don't listen. That's they don't listen. If they could win over the people they claim are their enemies, they would just fight with each other. They can't establish a, a coalition government in Palestine because they can't get along. And you'll see that when you go over there. When we go into Palestine, it'll be like you went from East Berlin to West Berlin or back or back West Berlin to East Berlin because in Israel, things are wonderful. Now, if you go into Palestine, which is like Bethlehem and some other places we may go, but mainly Bethlehem, when you're in Palestine, you, you know, they're going to say, well, it's because the Jews oppress us and they don't let, but they don't make anything of what they have either. You know what I mean? There's, there's, no, there's no admirable struggle to make do with what they have and to show that they can order their lives and 
better their lives and everything. It just stays in a state of chaos. And the reason it stays in the state of chaos is they can't even get along with each other. And when I say they, please, this is going on a recording. Somebody's going to hear this and say, oh, he's such a racist. He's saying, all I'm just saying, look at history. Does that mean every Arab person you're ever going to meet is this way? No. I know Arab people. I know Muslim people who are delightful, wonderful people who have made much of their... My children owe a lot of their vitality and health despite spina bifida to Arab doctors who came over here and got an education and became skilled surgeons that have taken care of my kids. I got nothing against Arab people. I'm telling you that if it's in Havilah and Shur, if we go to Jericho, what you will see, and it will blow your mind, is as soon as we enter into Jericho, which is Palestinian territory, You'll see young men sitting around everywhere, hundreds and hundreds of them, just sitting around with nothing to do. You know, it's pretty easy to stir up trouble with a bunch of young men sitting around with nothing else to do. Just saying. <clears throat> Please take to heart my absolute love for all humanity because God created all human beings and he wants every one of them to be saved. Nevertheless, God himself says in Scripture repeatedly, there are people who are going to reject him even when they're standing in front of him. They will. Satan rejected him, and there's nobody who knows who God is better than Satan knew, and he rejected him. So some people are just so filled with a twisted, self-serving nature and a desire to resist God's authority over their lives that they just will no matter what even when they're standing before God's judgment throne. And I just thank God that everyone at this table is prepared to stand before God's throne and say, by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, I stand before you, not innocent, but covered by your son's blood. And you say that to God, you're in. But there will be people who will say, I never knew your son. I don't care if I ever know your son. And by the way, I think you're kind of ugly too. And they'll say that to God. You know, it's hard to believe. I don't like the big <laughs> Yeah, I don't like the big white beard either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, George, you want to pray us out of here? Mickey says it's 701. Certainly. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross for me and the restitution you made on my behalf and the price fully paid for my sin. I confess that I have been less than what you had in mind for me and have chosen to live my life my own way and on my own efforts. Please forgive me and make me new. Thank you, Jesus, for the changes you will bring in my life and for loving me so deeply. Amen. Amen. Perfect prayer for where we ended on where you that. Ended far back yeah, good job, brother. Well, no, I had that like middle of the afternoon. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. You blessed me. I hope you've been blessed. Have a wonderful evening. Take